Well, the Pharisees had set in motion all of the things they needed to be religious. And they did them all so they felt good. But somebody was challenging that. And it was Jesus Christ. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembrick. I'm Janice. And we are studying Mark chapter 7 in just about three minutes time. So stay there as we go through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22. Corey and Ryan are here today. Corey, what's going on? Well, I am taking a look at Mark chapter 8 and the village of Bethsaida. Ryan? Today I'm studying the life of the disciple whom Jesus loved, John. Yeah, very, this is a very interesting study. Very good. Okay, Janice? Today, into my heart. All right, so take your Bible guide and turn to today's passage. If you don't have a Bible guide, stay there. We'll tell you how you can get one. Take the most important book of all. That is the Word of God. And turn to Mark chapter 7 as we begin to explore what God says to us today. Mark 7, 1 through 13. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Mark 7 and Mark 8, that's what we continue to read today, you know. Human beings, they just love traditions, don't we? I mean, we create routine ritual and generally systemize our lives. That's what we work towards. I mean, just look at all the different religions that we build. Even within one religion, there are so many varying traditions that it can be really difficult to figure out what everyone really believes. 
While traditions, routines, and rituals can be helpful, they can also take away from the simplicity of the good news or the gospel. The Bible tells us there is one way for our salvation, Jesus Christ. That's it. He is the Lord and he has paid the cost for sin. If we submit to him and trust in his work, he will save us. When we truly begin living for Jesus Christ, we are compelled to think about how we're living, our patterns, our practices, and our beliefs. To live for someone else means that we are inevitably going to have to change some of those. Remember that. God isn't impressed by our traditions. <laughs> he is all about our hearts. Our internal and external realities matter to him. We have to align our thinking. We have to align our living to reflect his priority. So let me get this straight. As a believer in Jesus Christ, when we come to Christ, that means we are Christians. Christian, what does that mean? It means a Christ follower. If we're a Christ follower, that means we follow Jesus Christ. So we should know about Jesus Christ, how he lived and everything else, so that we can follow him. Very, very important. Now take your Bible guide, turn to today's passage, and if you don't have yours, stay there. We'll tell you how you can get it. Or you can call us or write to us, and we'll send it to you, or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, click on the page, and It'll take you to it. Today, we're going to focus on traditions. And I think this is great. It's, it's Mark chapter 7. I love Mark. It's, it's a great book. Mark chapter 7 speaks about traditions. And Father, we pray today in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to read this and learn it. And I don't mean just read it, because a lot of people read the Bible. I'm talking about... May it penetrate our hearts and be deep within our spirit. Holy Spirit, help us today in the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, amen. Well, let's take a look at it because it really is something. Mark 7, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes, they came together. These Pharisees and scribes are something else, aren't they? They came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, the, the chief religious city, now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread defiled, that is with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, the washing of pitchers, the washing of copper vessels, and couches, and the whole business. You see, the Pharisees believed that they were acceptable because they followed requirements they had made, their religion had made. But God only has one requirement, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I mean, it's simple. The, the, the good news of Jesus Christ is very simple. You come to the Lord and you say, Lord, I can't do anything about my sin. I'm in trouble. I need your help. Come into my heart. Be the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross and rose again. That's all. You know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had these, these traditions. 
They had these ways of, they dressed a certain way. They didn't see Gentiles. They didn't touch dead bodies. They washed their hands uniquely. They did all these things and they thought that made them holy. But Jesus Christ said, I have come into the world that you may know me. Come to me, all you who are heavy and labored. I will give you rest. That's what Jesus Christ said. Very interesting, you know. Well, let's go on to Mark 7, verse 5. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but with their heart it's far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Our traditions do not save us. Our traditions do not save us. Our help and salvation is from Jesus Christ alone. You know, Psalm 121 is an amazing psalm. Uh, it says, I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? He, he says, then I remember it's God who made heaven and earth. That's where my help comes from. I look to the hills. Where does my holiness, my acceptability come from? Not there. And Then I listen to Jesus Christ and I take him by the hand and say, Lord, help me. And I understand that it's Jesus who makes me holy. That's the message of what Jesus Christ is saying in Mark. This is absolutely fascinating, let me tell you. All right, let's go on because it gets even better. Watch this, 7 and 13. All right, he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses his father and his mother, let him be put to death. Moses said that. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever profit you may have received from me is Corban. In other words, it is a gift to the temple or a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. Jesus identified it right here. And I can say this, trusting in our own religious ways can nullify the word of God. We, we don't trust in our religious ways. You see, the Bible says that when we come to Jesus and follow him and his ways, he will help us. This is the amazing thing about God. When we call on Jesus, he's as close as the mention of his name. He's not somewhere off on the south side of the universe. He's, he's right there, beloved. He's as close as Jesus Christ. Lord, are you there? Are you there, Lord? If you want to come to Jesus Christ, come today. Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross and rose again. And I take you as Lord of my life.
We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you clap and when you get excited, you are celebrating life. Do you understand that? Jesus Christ gave us life. But he promised that the Holy Spirit would be sent. Okay, so yesterday my segment was all about John the Baptist, and today my segment is about yet another John, specifically John the Apostle. Now, he's known famously as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and according to long-standing tradition, he penned the Gospel of John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. And this is his story. Though just a simple fisherman from Galilee, John was destined to become not only one of the twelve apostles of Jesus Christ, but also, along with his brother James and Peter, a part of Christ's inner circle of disciples. In fact, Peter, James, and John were the closest friends of Jesus, and thus witnessed events that the other disciples didn't, such as the raising of Jairus' daughter, the Transfiguration, and Jesus' private prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was John and Peter who were entrusted with preparing the Last Supper. Even after Jesus returned to heaven, these three continued in the ministry and became what Paul the Apostle described as pillars of the church. These three are also the only disciples who received new names from Jesus. Peter, or Cephas, was the name Jesus gave to this disciple, who was formerly called Simon. And John and James he nicknamed Bonarges, meaning sons of thunder, possibly referring to their overly bold and impulsive style. On one occasion, quips author Stephen Miller, when the Samaritans refused to welcome Jesus and his entourage into their city, the brothers sounded a bit like they had a hotline to lightning. Should we order down fire from heaven to burn them up? Another time, John ordered a man exercising demons in Jesus' name to stop because he wasn't one of the twelve disciples. And they even had the audacity to ask to sit on Jesus' right and left side in his coming kingdom. However, as his relationship with Jesus matured, so too did his spiritual life, so that the John we see in latter times is nothing like the impulsive and impetuous John of former times. In fact, out of all the disciples, John seems to have held a particularly special place in Jesus' heart. Tradition says that John wasn't just one of the three inner circle disciples, but was the beloved disciple of Christ. For it was to this man, rather than to his own brothers, that Jesus entrusted his mother Mary. Only one other person in the entire Bible was considered beloved of God, and that was Daniel. Is it any coincidence, then, that these two men are the greatest sources of prophetic revelation in the Bible? Indeed, the book of Revelation, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the gospel bearing his name, are all traditionally ascribed to him. Tradition also claims that John was the only disciple who didn't die a martyr's death. Apparently, he left Jerusalem around AD 65 for Ephesus, where he wrote the fourth gospel and the three epistles. Later, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he penned Revelation. After his release, he apparently returned to Ephesus, where he died peacefully at a ripe old age. Truly, he was beloved of God. So like all of us, John wasn't perfect, but he was faithful to the Lord and was one of Jesus Christ's closest friends and would be later described by Paul the Apostle as one of the pillars of the church in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. 
As he grew in the Lord, he matured a lot in his faith, and we can really see that clearly through his New Testament writings. And as I already mentioned, tradition says that John was the only disciple who didn't face a martyr's death, and was the last of the original twelve to die. Now, interestingly, it was his brother James who would be the first of the disciples to die, and we'll talk about James tomorrow. You know, it's very interesting because uh, people were, uh, when I was younger, people were deciding, well, no, John was killed. John was killed. But it's only tradition that tells us John wasn't killed. Yeah. We have tradition that tells us that, but we don't have the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us anything. Yeah. So it's very, very interesting. And John is a fascinating guy, I'll tell you. He oh, is. absolutely he is. The, the book of Revelation is his greatest unveiling. I mean, it's here's a man who knew Jesus, you know, from day one, and now here he is in Revelation seeing King of Kings, Lord of Lords, right? And, and he's seeing him in heaven. Mm-hmm. And, and in chapter four, it says, heaven opened and, and the door opened, it was in heaven, and I went up there, so he's in the spirit. So it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And Thank what you, a Ruth. touching scene at the crucifixion. Absolutely. Jesus would have given his mother to John to mm. take care of. Yeah. And yeah. Um, what a impactful. Very, time very in he's, the, he's the guy that, that anyway, well, we're getting off, but he's, anyway, he, it's, it's a great one, and we'll continue to talk about John as These well. These will be some of the things that we will be talking live. about live in person in Brampton, Ontario. Faith Gospel Tabernacle. Faith Gospel Tabernacle, October 21st from 1 till 5 30. If you can join us there, you need to register. There is no cost with that, but we would like to know that you're coming so that we can prepare to see you there. So uh, log on and see what is happening at Faith Gospel. That's good. October the 21st. Hope to see you there. Corey. All right. Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, we see Jesus go to the village of Bethsaida, which we know is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But where is the modern site? Well, there's a debate over that. Let's take a look. Despite being known from the Bible and from history, the precise location of the New Testament village of Bethsaida is still debated. The New Testament Gospels record that the apostles Peter, Andrew, and Philip were originally from Bethsaida, and that Jesus traveled there to preach and perform miracles. The first century historian Josephus records that the Tetrarch Philip, a son of Herod the Great who is also mentioned in the Bible, renovated Bethsaida in honor of the emperor's mother, gave it city status, and renamed it Julius around 30 AD. Josephus also records a battle fought near Bethsaida Julius that gives some geographical evidence to hopefully help place a good modern candidate for the city. It's known that Bethsaida was located on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, but like other villages and cities that you could sail to, it didn't have to be right on the shore. It could be a short hike away. According to several historical sources, Bethsaida also had a robust fishing industry and is believed to have been abandoned sometime around the 4th century. However, about two centuries later, Bethsaida again pops up in the accounts of Christian pilgrims traveling the Holy Land. So, by this Byzantine period, Christians at least thought they had re-identified Bethsaida. Today, there are two contenders for Bethsaida Julius, the longer-held site of Etel and El Araj that began to be excavated in 2014. 
Etel is currently one and a half miles away from the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But the lake has receded since the first century, and it has been estimated it could have been up to a mile closer, meaning Etel could have been half a mile from the lake shore. El Araj is much closer to the sea, and in the first century would have been directly on the shoreline. Both sites are close enough to the Sea of Galilee to have been Bethsaida, and in both, fishing paraphernalia like hooks and net weights have been found in excavations. Both villages were inhabited in the first century and show evidence of Roman occupation, which may point to Philip's renovations. At Etel, a Roman temple was excavated that would have been expected in a city dedicated to the empire. At El Araj, a Roman bathhouse was excavated, showing it too had a Roman population and may evidence Philip's renovations. The excavators of Etel believed that the city was abandoned due to an earthquake in the early 4th century. And the excavators of El Araj have noted that they believe their city was also abandoned in the 3rd century, until it was re-inhabited in the Byzantine era. El Araj has also yielded a Byzantine-era church and monastery, which is exciting due to the ancient Christian pilgrimage reports claiming that there was a church built over the place of Peter and Andrew's family home at Bethsaida. So there we go. Always really interesting to get into some of the archaeology of the area and really get into those debates over, over where it is at always interesting to me. But again, lots more with this this area of Galilee where Jesus spent a considerable amount of time ministering. So if people have questions, they can't ask you now, but they can store the questions up and come and ask you live. If you want to, yes. If you're able to <laughs> join us, you know, free to register, free to come and, and spend some time with us. We'll have Check a good time. Janice. Into my heart, into my heart, Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. You know, I'm struggling still with stuff going on in my throat, but you know what? God listens to the sound of our heart, not the tune that we make. So that's why I'm going to keep singing on here. And a lot of you always say, encourage me to sing because you sing along with me. And that's exactly what we need to do. We need to make ourselves available to praise and worship God from our hearts. So Into My Heart is the title of my segment today. Because in, in reading this chapter in Mark, we see the religious leaders, the scribes um, and, and uh, the Pharisees coming to Jesus. They're upset because he is not making his disciples do the things that they do, that they believe makes themselves clean or more righteous in the eyes of God. Now, Rod has already taught on it. I'm not going to go through that again. But Jesus, later on, his disciples come to him and, and they question him about it again. And Jesus says to them, I'm reading verses 18 to 23, or I'll just read a part of it. Are you thus without understanding also, Jesus says to his disciples? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach. And it's eliminated, thus purifying all foods. 
And then he, he, then he keeps saying, and he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles him. It's about what's in our heart. The Pharisees were so stubborn. They were so hard-hearted. They were so bent on their ways that they could not open up their hearts and their minds to hear what Jesus was saying, to hear what Jesus was teaching, to answer the questions that Jesus would ask them. We're going to be seeing that in the Gospels many times. He would question them and they, they wouldn't answer. But I want us to be able to make our hearts available to the Lord Jesus. That's what I'm asking us. That's what I'm asking myself to do, to keep our hearts pressed in toward God. Be careful what we let in. Don't let in our own stubbornness. Don't let our own prideful selves enter in. When we read through God's word, and this is where he will speak to our hearts so often because it's in the written word. When we come to something that we don't understand, it's like what Ryan, what you do a lot of times, you'll bring where there's so-called discrepancies. And, and all the time, it's that we have misread it or that we are not, we're taking something out of context and applying it. You know, Satan even did that, didn't he? In the garden with the temptation of Jesus. He, Satan knows the word of God too, but he will take it. He will twist it. Oh, did God really say that? The one that we come to for that information is God himself. Don't give the devil time. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him speak to you. Let his word um, change you and, 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 and rearrange uh, the way that you have your um, propensity set up inside. There will be things that God will move out of the way as you follow him. I've made notes for myself. God comes in and begins to clean us up. And it doesn't happen all overnight. We're still all a work in progress. You are too. We're a work in progress until the Lord takes us home and we are with him. So let's be that work in progress. Let's let our hearts be soft and pliable for the Lord's word to get into our minds and into our hearts so that we're not so stubborn. We're not so hard-hearted that we can follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And some things will be a little bit more difficult than others, I'll be honest with you, but it's worth every single moment. October the 21st is a great day. We're going to be live and myself, my wife, my son, my daughter, we're all going to speak. It's going to be great. Also, my other son's going to be there and I'd like to meet you. Why not come down to Faith Gospel Tabernacle in Brampton, Ontario, Canada. If you're in New York, you can come across the border and join us wherever you're at in Ontario. Just join us. We'd love to meet you and see you there. We'll see you on October 21st. Now we need to pray, Lord, help me to share your good news and help me to tell others about who you are.